Welcome to Forming the Spirit Within, a teaching ministry of Pastor Brad Riley. Pastor Brad is an associate and teaching pastor at First Church of the Nazarene here in Wichita, Kansas. He is the founder and director of the Merciful Servants of Christ, as well as the author of numerous articles. And now, here's Pastor Brad. Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you today. Good to see a few new faces, some faces that haven't been here for a while back again. Thank you for being in Bible study. We're finishing the last two verses of John chapter 13, and then moving on into 14. It's a section that really, those, those verses just work together. Um, so, uh, and we are glad to be celebrating with cake today for anniversaries of Mark and Debbie. That's pretty exciting. So I think the chocolate cake is coming out here pretty soon, a chocolate genoise cake. So feel free to get up and get it when we're staying, no problem. I have to leave in a hurry after we're over because of a funeral I have to do this afternoon, but, but y'all take your time. But uh, as we prepare to study, would you look, if you have your prayer card, let's, let's just pray before we begin. That's uh, a prayer before the study of Scripture. So read it aloud with me as we pray. Illumine our hearts, O Master, lover of all humanity, with the pure light of your divine knowledge. Open the eyes of our hearts that we may understand your gospel teachings. Implant deep within us the fear of your blessed commandments, that through them we may conquer all carnal desires and may be transformed to live, both thinking and doing the things that are pleasing to you. For you, O Lord, are the light of our souls and bodies, and unto you we give all glory and praise together with our Father, who is from everlasting and the all-holy, good, and life-creating Spirit, now and ever and unto the ages of ages. Amen. Thank you so much for praying and being here. That is what we ask every week in Bible study. We want God to open our eyes, open our hearts, Increase our knowledge that we can live truly for Him. Gloria's not here today because she's having her dizzy spells again. Oh, that's too bad. We remember Gloria. She's had some stroke issues, but she seems to have recovered from that. So let's. Saw her yesterday at Living Waters and she seemed like she was better, no, but. Gloria Wolf. Oh, you're talking about Gloria Wolf. Sorry. We have both Glorias that have needs of prayers, don't we? Okay. Gloria Wolf. Okay. Yeah. Pray for them. Well, if you look at verse 36, the very last two verses of chapter 13, you will see uh, the interaction that Jesus has been having uh, with his uh, disciples. It comes to a point where Jesus had told them he was leaving. Now, he's told them before he was leaving, but he's been telling them ever more pointedly as he comes to the, the end of his uh, earthly life here. And... Uh, he gave them last week in verses 33 through 35, we know that new commandment. And if you missed last week, go back and listen to that podcast. It's up now. I put it up yesterday. Because that some very, very important words there about Jesus' new commandment. The, the idea to love. To love not just, as the old commandment says, to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, with all thy strength, and to love thy neighbor as thyself. But Jesus says to love as he loves. So it's really a new commandment. It's don't love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as Jesus would love your neighbor. That's a whole nother challenge right there. 
And, and that we know, we, we talked about how the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, you know, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. See, the truth is we, we can't love Christ. We can't love as Christ does on our own. We're not poss- it's not possible for us. But by the power of his indwelling Holy Spirit living in us, it is possible. It is very possible for you and I to learn to love like Jesus. That's the challenge of our lives, to learn to love. And when we learn to love like Jesus, the world takes notice. It always has. It changes the world. So Jesus knows uh, he's about to go to the cross. He's, about, he's already about to be uh, betrayed. And we come to verse 36. And in response to Jesus' earlier statement about he's going away, and where I have to go, you cannot come. Um, he says this to Peter. He says, or Simon Peter says to Jesus. So we'll start reading in verse 36. And then I'm going to continue on as, as chapter 14 starts. And we'll go through the first six verses of chapter 14. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered, where I am going, you cannot follow me now. But you shall follow afterward. And Peter said to him, Lord, why cannot I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the cock will not crow till you have denied me three times. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And when I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may also be. And you know the way where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Let's stop right there and consider what's happening in this scripture today. Peter is saying to Jesus, uh, where are you going? That's been the question on their hearts. They don't understand where Jesus says he's going. They're thinking, you know, things are kind of at fever pitch right now in Jerusalem, right? This has been a tumultuous week. Uh, Jesus has actually kind of had to slip away from crowds where they've wanted to, to, to kill him. Uh, so much going on in this last week. And they, they sense Jesus has constantly been talking about going to the Father, where he's going. And they don't understand. They, they still, they know he's the Messiah, but they don't know what that means. They, they know he's their savior, but they don't know what that means. They know he's from the Father, but they don't quite know what that means. And we can't blame them because they don't have the gift of the Holy Spirit yet. They're, they're still thinking in earthly terms. And so in earthly terms, they're thinking that Jesus is going to go away for a while. It must be going to go hide. Things are getting really bad here in Jerusalem. It must be going to go hide for a while. Maybe he's going to go out to one of the faraway lands in the the diaspora, the Greek areas, or something where, where it's safer for him. That's what they're thinking, probably. 
And, and Jesus says to Peter, when Peter asks, where, where are you going, Lord? Um, he, he says, well, you notice he doesn't, Jesus doesn't answer Peter's question. He just said, when Peter says, where are you going? Jesus doesn't answer him and tell him. He just says, you know, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now. Notice that Jesus says, you cannot follow me now. But there will be a time when you will. And he says that to him. He says, but you shall follow afterwards. Peter said to him, well, Lord, why can't I follow you now? And this is typical Peter. Peter's the brash one. Peter's the, the rambunctious one. He's like, what, what, what do you mean I can't follow you? Yes, I can. <laughs> I can follow you. Trust me, I can follow you. Wherever you're going, I can go. Because Peter has a lot of self-confidence, right? And I'm, I'm going to go with you, Lord. There's no way you're keeping me away. I can go with you. In fact, he's so bold and brash, what does he say he can do? Not only will I go with you, but I'll die for you. I'll lay down my life for you. Thank you. Yeah, just said it right there. I'll lay down my life for you. Well, that's a pretty bold statement, isn't it? And Jesus knows Peter better than Peter knows himself. And that's true of Jesus. That's true of all of us. You know, Jesus knows us better than we know ourselves. Have you ever, have you ever been like Peter in that sense? You've said, yeah, I mean, you may not have said you'd die for somebody, but, but have you ever been a little brash and said you'd do something that you probably couldn't follow through with? Probably all of us have at one time or another. And that, that's kind of the ultimate in brashness is to say, well, I'll die for you, Lord. And, and I, think, I think Peter meant it. I really do. But the, the challenge is Jesus knows him, and he knows he can't do it. He can't do it yet. Can't do it yet. So Jesus tells Peter something very disturbing. He says, Peter, you, you think you'll lay down your life for me? I'm telling you that before this very night is over, before the cock will crow three times before you, I mean, and you will deny me three times before the cock crows, I mean. How do you think you would feel if you were Peter? And Jesus just told you that. You'll deny me. No way. I, I, I the Peter, I, he's, I, I'm sure he's aghast at the thought, Lord, why would I deny you? I'm not going to deny you. I don't think there's any way in Peter's mind he thought he would deny Christ. But they didn't know what was coming. They didn't know that there was going to be an arrest. And they didn't know that there was going to be this. I mean, this gets pretty serious when they drag Jesus out of the garden. We're, you, know, that, that's, you know that story. When they come and arrest him and Judas kisses him on the cheek. And we know Judas has already left the room now. We read that a couple of weeks ago. So I want to ask you a question this morning. What's the difference between Judas betraying Jesus and Peter betraying Jesus? Because make no mistake, Peter did betray Jesus. Peter repented. Peter repented, okay. That's on the after side. Is there a difference on the before side? Planning and forethought. Planning and forethought. Mm -hmm. Judas planned. Right. Judas betrayed Jesus. Uh, shall we just use this in cold blood? He just, he knew what he was doing. He made a plan with people to do it. And and in, in remember how we looked at two weeks ago this this beautiful setting of how Judas was probably right there at the head place at the table next to Jesus. And Jesus is trying desperately to reach out to him to not do what he's about to do. 
to love him, to honor him. And Judas still goes out and does it. That's cold. That's premeditated. But Peter's isn't, is it? Peter's stuck in the courtyard with John around the fire. And Jesus is being interrogated and been arrested. He's probably been you know, bound. Uh, it, it's, we, we don't know exactly what time of night it is or anything, but it's late and, and, and things are pretty ominous. And they're talking about taking him over to Pilate. You know, this is at Caiaphas' house where Peter's in the courtyard. And they're talking about taking him over to Pilate. I mean, things are pretty serious here. And the mounting fever pitch of the whole week is really probably weighing down on them. And Peter, in that moment, somebody says, Aha, you were with him. You're one of them, aren't you? Peter had to make a choice. He could stand up and say, you bet, and I'm proud of it. Or he could say, oh, no, it wasn't me. I'm not one of them. And, and he denies him three times. We know that story. It's not told right here in John, but, but we know that story. He denies him three times. She says, in fact, he even in Scripture tells us he cursed the fact that he didn't know him. I swear to you, I did not know that man. That, that's pretty bold. That's pretty big betrayal. But what's the difference? Peter's betrayal was born out of human weakness. Peter's betrayal is no different than you and I every time we fall down and sin against our God. We know better. We didn't mean to. (laughs) But sometimes we fall. And in that fall, we see just how weak we are as humans. And that's what Jesus knows. Jesus isn't mad at us for being human. I always tell people when I'm counseling with them, they have this terrible, guilty feeling. And and, and guilt is good in that sense. It draws us to repentance. But there's I I think there's a a type of guilt that's that's good and a type of guilt that's not good. And And the type of guilt that's not good is when we just continue to beat ourselves up over it. Uh and and the point of even after we've repented. And the point of, I tell people all the time, I say, God isn't mad at you for being human. You know, God isn't mad at you for being human. He wants you to do better. He wants to empower you to do better. But he's not mad at you. So get over it. Ask for his spirit to forgive you. For the, Christ forgives, always forgives. And try to do better. Peter's at that point of human weakness. Can you even imagine when that rooster crowed how bad Peter felt? And the words of Jesus came back to his mind. Oh no, what have I done? Just can't imagine. But there's a difference between Peter's betrayal and, and Judas' betrayal. Peter's betrayal is no different than us whenever we sin. We know better. Sometimes we fall. And the, the fact is, there are always and forever two kinds of sin. There are always and forever it will be two kinds of sin in this world. There's the sin that we willingly commit because we know to not do it. And we do it anyway, willfully. That's what Judas did. And there's the sin of Peter. And that's the sin of everyday living. You know, and 
Nazarenes sometimes get hung up on this thought of, of, uh, of willful sin versus of that, that we don't want to call the rest of it sin because it's just you know mistakes, human failures. But we run the risk of not living humble, repentant lives if we're not willing to call sin, sin. And there are always and forever two kinds of sin. The kind you commit willfully and the kind you commit because you're human. And both need the blood of Jesus. Both need to be repented of. The willful kind separates us in our relationship with Jesus, like it did Judas. Judas, from the moment he betrayed Jesus willfully, he removed himself from the grace of God. And he died. Scripture says by his own hanging, or recorded a little differently in different scriptures, but um, as far as we know, he died unrepentant, you know? But then the other sin is one that doesn't separate us from God entirely. doesn't remove us from the grace of God. It, it means we're human. And here's the good news. The good news is about, even though sometimes we Nazarenes, and I, I realize this is a podcast for everyone in the world to listen to. Not that everyone in the world does. <laughs> but people of all different persuasions and no persuasions and denominations and no denominations. And I want them to hear that even though the Nazarene church sometimes talks about mistakes and failures and things not as sin, it is sin. But it's a sin that doesn't separate us from the grace and life of God. And I, I draw this from the very author that we're speaking of, John. John writes in his first epistle, and we've studied that before. There are podcasts on that if you go back and search for them. In 1 John chapter 5, uh, John says there is a sin that leads to death, and there's a sin that doesn't lead to death. So there are always and forever two kinds of sin. We want to be mindful of both. We want to shun the kind that's willful and live in the grace of God to try and shun the kind that is of human weakness. And it's our belief, it's our theology, that we can, by the grace of God, by the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, rise above sin. Every day when you get up, nothing and no one can force you to sin. You must give your consent. You realize that? Nothing and no one can force you. They can take your life. That's what they did to Jesus. Took his oh, life. Also go by choice too. What's that? Go by choice. Like you have a... You have a choice. That's exactly right. You have a choice every day. And as I think it wasn't at Nancy Reagan that said, just say no. Was that her big campaign against drugs, I think? And so, uh, just say no. We always and forever have a choice. Just say no to sin. Now, in this, uh, Jesus is looking into these, the face of his closest companions and he sees fear, he sees troubled spirits. And, and, he, and in 14, verse 1, Jesus looks at him, he says, don't let your hearts be troubled. He knows they're troubled and he's going to give them some hope now. Peter, I know you don't understand. I know you, you can't go where I'm going and I know everything in you wants to go where I'm going and you want to know all about it, but just don't let your heart be troubled. What I want you to do is believe in God. You believe in God, Jesus says, so believe also in me. Let's just take that phrase right there. What is Jesus saying to them? You believe in God, so I'm asking you, believe also in me. Jesus is saying, I want you to believe in me 
the same as you believe in God. Because he's been telling them all along, I and the Father are one. He's already said that a few times. Everything the Father does, I do. Everything I do, I hear from the Father. Everything I say, I hear from the Father. Everything I see, I, the Father says. I mean, I and the Father are one. Jesus has said that over and over. And now he's saying, just like you believe in God. Well, how do they believe in God? They're Jews. And Jews believed that God, Yahweh, is the Savior of Israel. He is their salvation. He is their Savior. And he's the only God. These are all facts of what the Jewish people believe. This is what their faith is built on in, in the Jewish faith. And Jesus is saying, just like you believe about God in your Jewish faith, you can believe the same thing about me. Because I am God. That's in essence what he's saying here. And, and the way he says it. So he goes on, in the, trying to put their hearts at, at ease here, he says some things that I'm sure they didn't understand, but it all came back to them later. But let's follow what he's saying in verses 2 through uh, 4. In verses 2 through 4, Jesus begins to use an analogy uh, a metaphor, if you will, in, about where he's going. In my father's house are many, I'm reading the RSV. It says, in my father's house are many rooms. Okay, now if you're reading the King James Version, it says, in my father's house are many mansions. Is that right? I think Marlene probably has King James. Um, anybody have something besides mansions or, or uh, many rooms? You have dwelling places, many dwelling places in your version. Is that the New Revised Standard? Okay. Who else has anything different? I have MSG. There's plenty of room in my father's home. Plenty of room in my father's home. Okay. So he is, he is telling them uh, he's going, where he's going. I'm in my father's house. are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go... If it were, and I like the way this is phrased. Would I have told you? It's a question. If it weren't so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? So Jesus must have told them that in another area that we don't have recorded in Scripture. That John records this as a question. Would I have told you? And if you go back into the Greek here, you'll see that it's a question. This is The RSV is very accurate in the way it's worded here. Would I have told you? that I was going to go and prepare a place for you if it weren't so. You can believe me, remember? I, I, you know, believe me like you believe God. So he, he goes on a little further. He says, and when I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. Now they're probably hearing, about now they're probably hearing things like, well, I don't know where he's going, but... It's probably somewhere outside of Israel where he's safe. And, uh, you know, was, when all this dies down, he's going to come back and get us and we'll be with him again. That's probably what they're hearing. Because they're hearing it with unenlightened, unfilled, spirit-filled minds, you know, troubled followers. But we're spirit-filled believers. We are here to study the Bible and learn what is he really saying. Okay, and I, I wrote three words on the board for you. Three funny looking words. They're Greek words. We look at Greek words every now and then in this Bible study. And the first one, oikos, that is a brand of a famous yogurt. Okay, <laughs> oikos. For real? Yeah. For real. We look on the you, next time you're in the grocery store. Look at the yogurt section. You'll see oikos. Yeah. 
It's Greek yogurt. <laughs> There's such a thing as Greek yogurt. It's thicker and richer and creamier and supposedly healthier for you. What's yogurt got to do with Jesus preparing a place? <laughs> Good question. <laughs> what in the world does yogurt have to do with Jesus preparing a place for us? Well, this word means, let me write it on there. Does anybody know what that word means, what we translate it as? No, that's the brand of a yogurt. It doesn't mean yogurt. It's not, it's not the Greek word for yogurt. <laughs> okay, what does it mean? It means, literally, most literally, house. Oikos means house. Okay? So, and it's also a brand of yogurt? Some, some Greek people said this is their, they want to have their brand of yogurt in your house. Yes. I think that's what the marketing campaign is, maybe. Okay. But take ours to your house. If you know Greek, the Greek people want to buy it, probably. It, that belongs in our house. You know, It's a marketing campaign. So uh, the next word, but that's not the word Jesus uses here. Okay, in my father's, he does say in my father's house. He uses it there. Okay, in verse, in verse 2, in my father's house, if we were reading it in Greek, it says oikos. Okay, but then he says, are many rooms. And some say mansions, and some say dwelling places. And so we want to figure out what is the word he's using there, and what's the difference there. The word that he uses, there, and then when he goes on, uh, he says, if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And then he says, and when I go and prepare a place for you. So within, within two verses of two thoughts, he uses the word place, I'm going to write that up here, twice. Jesus uses the word place twice. If I go to prepare, I go to prepare a place for you, and if, when I go, I prepare a place for you. Both of those two usages are different Greek words. For some reason, Jesus chose to use two different Greek words there. Okay? And what we want to hear this morning is that the first word that he uses... Um, is in, in, in this idea for a, a place for you, if I go and prepare a place for you, is this word Monet. It's pronounced Monet. Monet. Okay? And this is a word that is sometimes translated as mansions, a abode, a dwelling place. So in my father's room are many of these if I go to prepare many of these for you, I'm going to go prepare a place for you. Okay, what kind of place? Well, it's a place. It's, a, it's an abode. It's a dwelling place. It's a mansion. Okay? And then, but for some reason, Jesus changes. When he, then when he says, uh, and if I go and prepare a place for you, now he uses this word. It gets confusing. You know, in English, we just say house. <laughs> we just say room. We just say, you know. But Jesus says this word. And then the second time he uses that word place, he's using this word. So what do these two mean? And why does he use them differently? The best I can determine in, in, in a little, with a little bit of scholarly effort, I tried my best to look at these two words as differently as I could and look at different usages of them. They both mean, all three of these words mean some kind of dwelling or structure. Okay? Some type of a place. All three of them. A house is the common one. Just common, a house. The Monet team seems to be much less common, much more extravagant. The third, the tapas, means sort of like a, a, a dwelling place, but it has a little more meaning than just house. Okay? It's, it's, you get this feeling that it's, it's more meaningful. 
but he, house and home. Like maybe the difference between a house and a home. Yeah. What, what's the difference between a house and a home? They're both a structure, but home has love. Okay. And so we get this feeling in this one that it's more of a, a place that has meaning to it. So this middle word is the one that really intrigued me as I studied this. Because I, I, I want to read for you a couple of early church fathers. One of the things I love to do in this Bible study is give you some of the wisdom of the ages. Because uh, I certainly don't have much wisdom of my own to give you. But here's the wisdom of the ages. St. Irenaeus, writing in the middle 200s, okay, 3rd century, bishop of the church in the 3rd century, St. Irenaeus said this. I'm just going to read a couple short ones for you. Talking about this whole idea of many rooms in the Father's house, he said, All things belong to God, who supplies all with a suitable dwelling place. Even as his word says that a share is allotted to all by the Father, according as each person is or shall be worthy. Isn't that interesting? St. Irenaeus is hearing this idea of a dwelling place that has a suitability to everyone according to their worth. The, the dignity of what they deserve. That's an interesting thought, isn't it? Hmm. Now, in, uh, in this look at Tertullian, is, uh, no, no church really calls Tertullian a saint, but he, he ended his life kind of in heresy. But he had many great things to write. He was even earlier than Irenaeus. Uh, he, he said this, he said, how will there be many mansions in our father's house if not to match the diversity of what each one deserves? How will one star also different from another star in glory? How will one star also differ from another star in glory unless in virtue of disparity in their rays? <laughs> so there, there's, the early church fathers are seeing this idea that, that there is in heaven, in all these mansions, in all these rooms, in all these places, some diversity according to what we deserve. I think that's a fascinating thought. It might rub some of you a little wrong and go, wait a minute, what do you mean? But who deserves more than the other? Well, remember what, what uh, somebody look up 1 Corinthians chapter, is it, uh, I want to say it's chapter 3. Because I, I, I don't have it here where I, I'll leave. Somebody look up 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and I believe it's in verse 8. Let me check my notes here. Yeah, first, somebody read 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 8. Let's see what you come up with there. Pretty sure that's it. Chapter 3, verse 8. Yes, would you read that for us? Read it loud. The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose. And each will be rewarded according to his own labor. That's Paul, the apostle, talking about, when he's talking about Apollos, one plants and one waters, but God gives the increase. He also says one man plants, one man waters. We all do different things, but each will be rewarded according to his own efforts. This is this idea, it, it, is, it is woven throughout the New Testament. We don't think about it, we don't talk about it very much, but it is woven throughout the New Testament that Paul talks about there is a crown laid up for us with many jewels and that there are rewards in heaven according to what we deserve. You know, I'm, I'm going to tell you right now that when I get to heaven and, and I plan to be there, Mother Teresa is going to have way more rewards than I do. Way more. 
She devoted her life. She, I mean, in my modern life, she's just one of the most incredible persons to ever walk the face of the earth, I think, uh, in my modern life. And, and so I have no problem with the thought that her rewards or her mansion or whatever that is, is way better than mine. I might be in a little two-bedroom apartment. I'll just be lucky if it's two bedrooms, huh? <laughs> Me and Rhonda have our own and the kids have another, huh? <laughs> We, you know, we, we, think, we think so literally, you know. <laughs> we think so literally about this. Jesus doesn't want us to think literally. I think one of the reasons he's using different words is so we don't get literal. Sometimes we take things too literally in Scripture. We, we need to know when to take them literally and when not to. Jesus is using a metaphor here. Heaven isn't a place. It's a state of being beyond this world. When we get out of this world, that is when we physically die, we cease to exist in time and space. And we are in eternity. And in this eternity, there is heaven. Or as the Old Testament Jews believed, the heavens, plural. These were Jews. They were trained and brought up in Old Testament Middle Eastern thought. And they believed in the heavens. The heavens were, they, in fact, they believed in levels of heavens. The Apostle Paul even says, when I was caught up into the third heaven. And that was considered, the, the third was the highest, the place where God is, you know. I can't give you the exact verse, but we can look it up afterwards. It's, I, I want to say it's in the Corinthian letters, but I can't remember right now. Um, good question, though. So there's this levels of heaven, you know. But again, how do we understand that we cannot understand all of this entirely? Because we're the, we're the created trying to learn of the creator. But what we can know and what Jesus really wants them to know is, number one, they can trust him. You can trust me. Just like you believe in God, you need to believe in me. And I've been telling you that there's many places. I'm going to go to my father's house, and there's many places for you there. I think yours there, Dennis, said something about many room for all or something, right? Well, room, a room in my father's home. Yeah, yeah. So what he wants them to get is, you know, whether it's a mansion, whether it's, you know, what some get more rewards than others. His point is there's room for everyone, and it's all with the Father. Make no mistake, every one of you will be with me, will be with the Father. Yes? Are we really going to, you know, like, have, I mean, we won't have our human knowledge to know, like, Mother Teresa has more than I Correct. Have. We won't. Because, you know, there's no um, jealousy, no right. sickness, no pain. No That's pain. why it shouldn't bother us. That's, you're exactly right. It shouldn't bother us that some people get more rewards than others. Who cares? Who's Mother Teresa? She was a, a she was a, she's, she's considered a saint by the Catholic Church, but pretty much considered a saint by everyone's standards. She just, she's a very holy woman, a little bitty lady that served as a nun all her life in India. And devoted her life to the poor and the dying and the sick in the streets of India in some of the worst, worst situations imaginable. Do you denounce she devoted her life. Well, we can't. We can't deny. We do, We don't. We don't teach a lot about them because it's one of those historical, in-depth things about the church that once the Protestant Reformation happened, and we're only about a hundred years old. About. 400 years after the Protestant Reformation, the Nazarene Church, we just didn't feel it was something we needed to teach to enjoin it as an article of faith. 
But if you look at the faith of Christianity throughout the ages, yes, there are such things as saints. Now, in one sense, the New Testament uses the word saint, just means a holy one. It literally, you, we're all, if you're believers, you're called saints. Does the Jewish do that? No, the Jewish didn't have a fully developed concept of the presence of God and in heaven because that was Old Testament and they nobody could understand a fully developed concept of heaven and being with Christ until Christ came to usher us in the way we're going to talk about the way, the truth, and the life in a minute so this idea, so you give a good question, so let's pause for a moment and think about what are saints and why are they historically the church of Jesus Christ has always recognized People whose lives were particularly holy, particularly loving, particularly uh, wonderful. And the church began in the earliest of days, began to believe that when those holy people died, they would still pray for those of us still on our journey. That that's what they do in heaven. They just... What, what, what do people do in heaven? Well, we don't really know, but one thing we know is that if you look in the book of Revelation, okay, in chapter 5, we see a glimpse into the throne room of heaven. That's where John is caught up into a vision. And what we see are these myriads of saints in white robes holding golden bowls full of incense, and it says those are the prayers of the saints. So this so, concept, the concept that they're, they're praying for us is pretty much a universal thought. So is the Nazarenes now starting to get into Catholic beliefs? No, not at all. Not at all. What I, want you to, what I want you to hear is that's not just a Catholic belief. That's a Christian belief by everyone pretty much over the last 1800 years. It's only... It's more Gentile than it was Jewish. It was not Jewish, that's right. Because Jews... Jews, when they died, didn't have an understanding of what the afterlife was going to be about. They believed in a place called Sheol in Hebrew or Greek Hades. It was the place of the dead. And there was a place for, there was a good side to it and a bad side to it. But they didn't have a fully developed understanding of the concept of heaven and being with God in the beauty of his holiness because. Christ did not come. God had not been revealed yet in that beauty. But one of the purposes of Christ coming to earth is to reveal the full nature of the Father. You see, we really, nobody could know who God is or what God is like until we see Jesus. When we see Jesus, and that's why he says, when you've seen, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. This is who God is. I know in the Old Testament you thought God was this God of war and just and, and, and uh, you know, taught them to slaughter people in villages and things and all that's a really deep subject that we have to spend a study time on. But what Jesus is really trying to say is I am in the Father and the Father is in me. And so in the fullness of time God sent his only son so that he could reveal the real true nature of Father God. The book of Hebrews chapter 1 Verse 3, Jesus Christ, in, in, it says in the, in the first three verses of the book of Hebrews, says, now in the olden days, God was revealed through the prophets and through the martyrs and all of this. But now, in these last times, he is revealed through his son, Jesus Christ. 
And he, meaning Jesus, is the exact representation of the Father. So, we want to know what God is like? It's Jesus. That's what God is like. Is Jesus loving? Completely. Is Jesus giving? Completely. Every, everything, is, everything about God is Jesus, and everything about Jesus is God. This idea of, of uh, how, did, how did I get off on that thought about the, oh, I know, because we talked about Mother Teresa, yes. So what is a saint? We should all aspire to be saints. Saints are human beings who have died. They have no power. They can't make anything magically happen. They're just holy ones who've gone before us. The book of Hebrews also says, we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Cheering us on. Helping us, you know, cheer us on as we run the race. What are the saints? They're just holy ones who, they're closer to God. Now, this brings me, it's a good question, because it's going to bring me to this word right here. Why is this word so different? Monet. Because you said that was just a house, a dwelling place. This one's not. This, this one is. But this one's not. What's interesting is when we look at Greek literature. I thought you said it was a dwelling place. It is a dwelling place, but it's not just a common dwelling place. This one's a common house. This one's more of a, a home type feeling. But this, one's, this, one's, this one's a, an interesting word. It does, does mean it's a, a structure or a dwelling place. Go ahead. A castle? Yeah, that's a, an idea of something grand or something. But here's what I want you to hear. In Greek literature, this word is not necessarily in Scripture, but what we're trying to do is determine how it's used in Scripture. This is the only time, this word is only used twice in all of the Bible, in all of New Testament. Only twice, and it's right here in this chapter by Jesus. It's the only time it's ever used. Usually when Jesus is talking about a house or a home, he uses one of these other two. But this one has this idea. In Greek literature, it's sometimes used as something that, a place where it has different stages or levels. Aha! Does that mean that maybe his disciples will be a little bit higher level than the rest of the people later on? I don't know. I don't think he's trying to teach them that. I think everyone fits. We ought to all want to be at the highest level. Right? So, but the point is, is in Greek literature, sometimes it's used that way. Could it be that Jesus is saying, because they understood levels to heaven. That was the way they were trained in their Jewish thought. So could it be that Jesus is speaking to them in terms that they understand that on the pathway, what is, what is Jesus going there for? Does he need to go literally build houses for him? No. There are... In essence, in fact, I think one of these early church fathers says they're already built. I, mean, I was going to read you that one too. Um, if, I don't know if I... Yeah, here. Okay. This is from uh, Cyril of Alexander. Okay, he was, We've read him a few times in here. In the bishop in, in, down in the Egypt area, Alexandria, in I think the third century. If there were not many mansions in God the Father's home, he would, he, he would have said that he was going on before them to prepare beforehand the homes of the saints, the holy ones, in other words. But since he already knew that there were many homes already fully prepared and awaiting the arrival of those who love God, he says that he will depart, but not for this purpose, Rather, he leaves in order to secure the way 
to the mansions above to prepare a passage of safety for you and to smooth the paths that were formerly impassable. You see, nobody's been to heaven before. Okay? They've been in the, yeah, everybody's dead. They've been in the afterlife, but nobody's been to heaven before. Jesus is the pathway into heaven. And he's about to say that in our closing words. We're going to talk about the way, the truth, and the life. Listen to what Cyril says at the end here. He says, uh, he's quoting Jesus as to say, I shall not then, he says, depart to prepare mansions for you. They are already enough there. They're already enough there. There's no need to make new homes for my creation. But I go to prepare a place for you because of the sin that has mastery over you in order that those of you who are on the earth will be one day mingled with the holy angels who are in the very presence of God, okay? Come right to you in a second. Otherwise, the holy multitude of those above would never be able to mingle with those who are defiled below. But now when I shall have accomplished the work of uniting the world below with the world above, giving you a way of access to the city on high as well, I will return again. And at that time of regeneration, I will receive you with myself so that where I am, there you may be also. Those are, that's, that's Cyril of Alexandria writing as if paraphrasing Jesus, kind of like a message would be. He's kind of trying to paraphrase what Jesus might have meant there. Yes? Would that be like, for after revelations, when he comes back and everybody goes to heaven wherever? Um, yes, but don't think linear. Don't think after. It's just when. Okay. Right. So it, it just it's just not really after, but um, but yeah, he's talking about at the end of the, when is he when he's going to come back and get us all is the end of time. So at the end of time. Is in the afterlife right now until that point comes, right? Yes. Let's think about that a little bit. But we talk about people after the, when they die that they are in heaven with Jesus. We do. We do. But what we don't have is a fully un, fully developed understanding of just what is heaven. Now, we have images in the book of Revelation, streets of gold, you know, all the beautiful images we've heard in songs so about and all of that. they also say they're going to rise, the dead in Christ will rise right, first. Right, right. So there's somewhere... So, so that, all of that New Jerusalem image, the streets of gold and all that, that's at the end of the story, and that's when this earth and heaven pass away and everything is restored. So where are they now? Well, let's look at a story from Jesus that I think illustrates it. In Luke chapter 16... Okay, now we're getting off the path a little bit here, but this is good stuff. This is, this is how you study the Bible. You can't just look at one book. You've got to look at the entirety. Okay, what would inform us a little bit about the afterlife or heaven? Luke chapter 16, there is a story, and I, I won't turn there for interest of time, but I think I know it well enough I can tell you about it. There is this man who's rich on earth, and he uh, treats this beggar at his home poorly. Okay? But they both die. And Jesus is telling this story. It's, it's, and, and when they're both die, it says that the rich man is in Hades. Okay? The poor man, the beggar, he actually names him. He names him as Lazarus. Now, we do not believe that's the same Lazarus that he raised from the dead. Okay? Not the same one. Just a common name. 
But for whatever reason, Jesus named him as Lazarus. Maybe there was another Lazarus that they knew or something that would make them think of that. We don't have all that information. But he says Lazarus, when he died, says the, the, poor, the rich man dies first and he goes to the place of the dead. Hades literally means the place of the dead. Okay? And it does not mean hell. Hell is a different word from Hades. They're different Greek words. Gehenna is Greek for hell, which means a place of torment. Hades is a Greek word that means a place of the dead. What was the word for hell? Gehenna. How do you G- Jesus, G-E-H-E-N-N-A. G-E-H-E-N-N-A. So in that, Jesus, the rich man goes to the place of the dead. The poor beggar, Lazarus, it says, he is carried away by the angels to the bosom of Abraham. The bosom of Father Abraham. In paradise. Jesus even uses the words in paradise. With the bosom, Okay. And, and, the, and a story ensues that, that the rich man sees Lazarus. And the rich man's like, I'm in torment here. I need, uh, I, I can see. So clearly the rich man can see. You know, we're thinking up and down, but it doesn't necessarily have to be that. It could be a cross. There's just a chasm. Jesus says, the, ri- the rich man says, you know, why can't I come over there? And Jesus says, well, you can't because you had all your riches on earth. You know, and... Uh, he says, well, if I'm stuck here, I don't, you know, somebody go tell my family. And Jesus, he says, because they're not going to, I want my family to know about this. There must be two separate places in the afterlife. And this rich man in the bad side says, I, I want my family to know. Somebody go tell them. And Jesus says, they have the prophets. They have Moses. They have the prophets. They didn't believe them. They're not going to believe if somebody else goes and tells them. But when you really read that story, what you see is what can we say? is that when we die, number one, there's a place where we go. A place is not literal, but again, there's the word place, okay? Somewhere. We piece all the pieces of the New Testament. We have to go somewhere. Our spirits go somewhere, okay? Our bodies go into the ground, but our spirits go somewhere. And we put all the pieces together. Jesus says the spirit of this poor Lazarus is with Abraham's bosom. That means a warm, loving, homey place. Abraham is one of the great patriarchs of the Old Testament. He would certainly be with God as a, as a saint, if you will. And so somewhere it's with Jesus, okay? So there's a good side and a bad side. But is that the final heaven? Is that the, is that the final? No, it can't be. Because it says, if you follow the whole of the New Testament, it tells you that in the end of time, everyone's resurrected. There's a judgment then. And then they receive their final rewards. So there must be, if you really look at the New Testament well, there must be an, I'm going to use the word, an intermediate state where we are when we die. But whatever that is, guess what? It's still with Jesus. We can still think of it as heaven because perhaps heaven has many levels. I don't know. The Jews certainly believed it did. Maybe there's a level that's really, because when we get there, are we ready to be with Jesus? All mansions I know are huge, have many rooms. Many, 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 many world. rooms. Yeah. yeah, that's right. I see a question back here. Let's say the dead in Christ shall rise. So yeah, the, the bodies will rise, yeah. be reunited with their spirits. The books are open. The ju- that's called the, the, the day of judgment, if you will, the great day of judgment. And everyone gets their eternal reward. Some to heaven, some to hell. Matthew chapter 25, Jesus talks about that. 
Um, but what I want you to hear for today is that is that these Jews are, are they're trained in a belief that heaven has many levels. So Jesus is using words that in their Greek language, they all knew Greek. That was the language of the New Testament. Maybe they're hearing him talk about this idea. But what he really wants them to hear, even though they don't understand it, he knows he's going to bring the fullness of the Spirit to them later, and then it's, they're going to remember all of that Jesus taught them when they received the Holy Spirit, the day of Pentecost. What he really wants them to hear is, you can trust me. Because listen to his final words. It's Jesus' final words to them. And, and, and he says, and I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. So wherever we are after we die, if we're, if we're dying in faith in Jesus, we're with Jesus. Okay? The Apostle Paul says it this way. He says, I don't know whether to go on or to stay here and be with you. My heart is torn because I want to be here in the work the Lord has given him here, but I know for me to die is gain. And to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. So wherever we are when we die, we're present with Jesus. And I guarantee you we're not going to be worrying about whether so-and-so's house is bigger than ours or whether it's paved with gold or not, or whether it's going to ever be paved with gold. Those are earthly thoughts. Those we leave behind in the grave. Okay, we will be in glory. Now, this is difficult stuff. I know it's deep stuff, but this is how you work through Scripture and ask some critical questions, because Jesus is about to say, Thomas says in verse 5, Thomas says, isn't that interesting? We started with Peter, and now Thomas jumps into the conversation. Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you are going. <laughs> How can we know the way? I mean, Thomas is honest, isn't he? He's, he's just being honest. You know, he's the one that gets credited with all the doubts. You know, I think he's just being honest. Rather than pretending, I'll go with you anywhere, Lord. I'll die for you. Like Peter does, he just honestly, I don't know why you're talking about Jesus. We don't know where you're going. You know, and in a little bit, in a few verses, next week we'll see Philip gets into the discussion. But Jesus says to Thomas, he says, how can, Thomas in his honesty, he says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. Then he asks the question, how can we know the way? Thomas is literally a little bit skeptical, a little bit in fear. They're all troubled. Jesus said, don't let your hearts be troubled. They're all afraid. And Jesus wants them to hear this. Thomas in his fear says, Lord, how can we know the way? I want to know the way. That's what Thomas is saying. I want to know the way. I want to be sure we know the way. And Jesus says, I am the way. John 14, 6, famous verse. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And the I, when Jesus says it, is in Greek, they have what they call emphatic personal articles. Okay? It's emphatic. What does emphatic mean? Strongly emphasized. I am the way and the truth and the life. How does he say it? I am the way and the truth and the life. And the, that article, that personal article, the, it's there. He says, it's not just I'm way. If he'd said I am way, I am truth, I am life. Well, that's not to say I'm the only way. I'm the only truth. I'm the only life. You know, Jesus is being very emphatic here. 
I am the way to the Father. No one gets there. No one gets to the Father. He just says, he finishes with those words. No one comes to the Father but by me. Now, we can argue, and many have, what does it mean to get there by him? Okay. And that's for a whole other discussion. But ultimately, no one is knowing the glory of heaven and the beauty of the afterlife without going through Jesus, one way or another. So, what can we learn from this? We've, it's straight up 12, and I told you I had to rush out today because of a funeral. How can we close this discussion? We've been looking really deep at some stuff about heaven, about the, the mansions, and, and what those are. You know, literally, truly, I believe the mansions are metaphorical. Okay? I believe it's all, I believe the streets of gold are metaphorical. I, I don't believe we're going to really walk on a street of gold. I think it, Scripture is trying to share with us the greatest thing that our minds can imagine. And for these poor Jews, a mansion was the greatest thing they could imagine. Okay? And streets of gold. I mean, who would pave a street with gold? Well, actually, the, the Romans tried. Uh, yes, go ahead. I want to say the whole time I come to Bible study, my Bible says the same as yours, but it's yes. from word to word. Yes. That is the first sentence that has came to exactly every single word I have. So there, you can't change that. It is what it is. It's interesting, isn't it? Uh-huh. It is what it is. You can't change that. So, Jesus, it is metaphorical. Let's don't get hung up on what our mansion's going to look like. Let's just make sure we know the way and the truth and the life. Now, I want to pick up with that next week. So there's a lot to say about what it means to be the way, the truth, and the life. So, this is going to, we're going to be on this chapter for a while um, because then we're going to get into discussion with Philip and. Uh, and Jesus is going to say, you know, even more, he's going to say to Philip, he's, he's going to say, you know, how do you, what do you mean you can't? How could you have been with me this long, verse 9, and you don't know me? So uh, there's a big question to us. You know, when we fall down and we fail, I hear Jesus saying, how could you do that? You've known me this long. How could you do that? You know, um, but God, but that's for another story. That's for another time. Um, going to be on the podcast. Oh yeah, every week always is. Yeah, I'll get it up. I'll get it up there. You can go back and listen. I got yeah, last week's up there. It's up yet yesterday. So, thank you for your presence today. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your questions. Look at the disciples. They had questions. It's okay to have questions. It's okay to say, I don't understand. That's what Thomas said. It's okay. God isn't afraid of our questions. Okay? He'd rather we have sincere questions than act like hypocrites and think we got it all figured out when we know we don't. Okay, let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this group of, of disciples who want to come and earnestly study your word. As we prayed in the beginning, just light up our lives with your word to be, bring us into your divine knowledge. Show us your path of life, the one that Jesus died to bring us. So, uh, Father, our hearts are open. Be with us now as we close this time until we meet again. And we ask all of this in the strong name of our Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you, Father, and the Holy Spirit as one God forever and ever and under the ages of ages. Amen. This has been Forming the Spirit Within. I'm Roger Culver, inviting you to tune in next time as Pastor Brad opens God's Word 
helping us to form the Holy Spirit within us. Until then, may grace and peace be with you.